is Black Social Capital. Today's guest is Jerome Joseph. Jerome is a first-generation college student from a low-income neighborhood. In fact, his zip code had one of the highest rates of incarceration for Black men in the state of Texas. This is the lens he has used throughout his career as he works to support people navigating really tough environments. Jerome graduated from Howard University. He began his career as a middle school science teacher and Teach for America Corps member in his hometown, Houston. And he has also served as a dean of student culture, an academic dean, and a coach for teachers. Jerome is currently serving as the New York Executive Director of America Needs You. Welcome, Jerome. Thank you so much, Dr. Jackie, for uh, and Dr. Theo. I'm really excited to be on the pod today. I'm super excited to have you as well. Um, I just want to jump in really quickly and just tell everyone that's listening, you're in for a treat. Um, I'm excited because um, I've known uh, Jerome for uh, close to a year at at this point. And uh, one of the things that I I know for sure is that he's a hands-on, direct action, by any means necessary type of leader. Appreciate that, brother. uh, You know, I got to tell the truth, right? (laughs) And and I think um, the other thing about about you that I, I think is exciting, especially for our listeners, is that you have a really good way uh, about you in terms of keeping keeping the student at the center of everything that you do. Um, a lot of times, especially in mm-hmm. career for, for K-12 and higher education, the further that you go up in your career, uh, the less it becomes about that that end user, in this case, students, right? And so right. Um, you'll sit in, in meetings, um, you'll sit at tables, you'll talk to funders, and you'll remind organizations, you'll remind the people in the room uh, that the student is at the center of everything that you do. So, mm-hmm. um, so this will come out in an interview, I'm sure, but I'm going <laughs> to sit back, watch, take some notes along the way. Um, but for now, I'll just turn it back over to Dr. Jackie. So we're going to get started today with our intellectual capital segment. This is a discussion of a Black scholar's research, academic journey, or current events in the professional world. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about a current or about current events in the professional world. We will be discussing this article in Nonprofit Quarterly on Billionaire Philanthropy in Education. So the title of this article is One More Reason Billionaires Might Want to Exit Education Philanthropy. So it's like, uh uh-oh, right away. And uh, the author is Martin Levine. He wrote this in 2018. And the premise of this article is that mega philanthropists like Gates and the Walmart family may be wrong thinking that they can improve education through funding. Levine pulls from multiple sources to put forth a few ideas like um, philanthropists have poured billions of dollars into K through 12 education. Outcomes aren't improving. And that the reason for all of that is that there's passionate fighting for both sides on every single issue. And that that causes everything to essentially be at a standstill. The article goes on to point out that 
the philanthropists themselves are sometimes guilty of having colonizer agendas by using their power as donors to dictate what education institutions should and shouldn't do. A final point that this article makes is that philanthropy can be effective when the donors listen to their beneficiaries in terms of how to address their specific needs instead of dictating the process of improving outcomes. So what are people's thoughts and initial feelings about about this? I think for me, Dr. Jackie, that it really hit home because so um, I in my career, I worked in Newark, New Jersey, and this is around the time that Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg had de- donated, I think, like $100 million into injecting $100 million to the school district there. And I saw it was a very interesting seeing how things played out there. I think that um, in education, it's like, you know, when you see one thing that works in one place, people want to just take that thing up and then place it in another place, right? But I think that the thing that people need to, that people fail to realize is that every single place has its own unique culture, right? It's hyper-local culture. Like I've worked in Brownsville in Brooklyn, and I've worked in Crown Heights in Brooklyn. Geographically, these neighborhoods border one another, but working in those communities was very different, right? Um, even though that they're s- similar, uh, they're in the um, same, same place, but in similar populations, but still culturally very different places, right? And so I think that uh, when you're thinking about donors, they're at that top, top, top level, right? And they have absolutely no idea what's actually happening on the ground. And they leverage the, they listen to the folks who are experts. And those experts frequently, if we're going to be honest, don't necessarily have uh, a practitioner's lens. And they've never worked in the communities that they've actually, that they're actually trying to impact. So that they don't really, that means they, they're making educated guesses based on research that worked elsewhere and not necessarily there. And so I think that's the danger when you, when, um, when philanthropists are trying to throw money at a problem that they don't fully understand. Yeah, I think that that's, that's spot on. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about some of my initial thoughts on the article as well. And, you know, one of the things that I wrote down was, you know, a solution might not be the solution you know, especially as the demographics and the mm. community shift, right? So you might have, you know, a great program that, that worked in 2018, but two years later in 2020, you know, your demographics or your community might have shifted. And so you might you might think that the solution, you know, in 2018 is going well, but if you even take a, a small poll of that community in 2020, they, they, they might be asking for a different solution um, based on on new circumstances, right? And so I think that that's something that when you're looking at uh, you know top down philanthropy, and even when uh, when you you depend on those experts, um, you know if they're not reaching down as well um, to get that feedback, then then you you have some of those issues where you don't see the results that you want. I have a lot of thoughts about, and I also don't have as near the amount of expertise that you have, Jerome, or you have Dr. Theo, um, on, you know, working with philanthropy and, you know, that is, that is absolutely your world. And I have not dealt with a whole lot of that. The philanthropists that, you know, are mentioned in this article are typically white and none of them were black. I think there was one philanthropist of color, um, one family uh, mentioned. And 
I just think that, you know, we have to spend so much time unlearning, um, you know, racism and anti-blackness specifically. And, you know, there's there's almost this contempt for poor people right in this in this country, um, especially among maybe our people, you know, who are more elite in the country. And to have them be able to come in and say, well, I know I want to help the poor kids or I want to help, you know, the kids of color or the black kids specifically. And this is how it needs to be done. It's like, no, you're actually not the person to say like, this is how it needs to be done. Right. Because I mean, you, you really need to unlearn everything that you've learned about, you know, race, about class, about socioeconomic status um, and other people's cultures, like you can easily just come from a deficit model. Right. And it's like, oh, well, the students don't have anything, but you could have built on these students strengths. Right. Mm -hmm. Actually tapped into and listened to the actual practitioners, like you said, and you, you didn't have to just listen to the person who's at the top. Right. Like you might only be talking to the principal or their head administrator who is also probably white or non-black and just and, and thinks they understand well enough or got briefed and just feels comfortable. But they actually don't know. They don't know well enough to advise the philanthropist. I, Dr. Jackie, I'm actually with you. I think that you do have to go. I think the core of the issue is this colonizer mindset, right? And and when I think about I, this kind of goes back to my point when the, th- the thought process, and I'm pretty sure we've all heard this, is that systems that are systems are not created with black folks and, and a lot of times not black people of color in mind, right? And so they're inherently going to be racist in a, in a lot of ways, right? Um, and even the most best intentioned systems that are not created by black people or even people of color not, uh, and other non-black people of color are going to be racist, like just straight up. That's just the way it is sometimes, you know? And I think that when looking at this, I think it's you, what you talked about, Dr. Jackie is a, a, a sense of feeling sorry for people. Right. And when you're yeah. doing this work, it shouldn't be about feeling sorry. It should be coming from a place of empathy. Right. And I think an understanding, and I think, Spending time, if you're going to be a philanthropist, you should actually spend time and invest in a place over a long period of time and really get to know the the, the things that are happening on the ground. And I think that, and I, I have, in my experience with philanthropy, there are some people who are really good at just donating the money and getting out of the way and listening. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what you want to do, right? And it's not, they're, they're like, look, I, I think that the best folk, best people who are philanthropists, they're giving the money. Um, they're holding you accountable, but they're also letting you do it your way because you know the best, you're the expert in that that context. But I think that it can get extremely toxic and ineffective when the people with the money are trying to dictate policy about things they don't really know about, right? I think a great example of that, if you look back at um, the work that the Gates Foundation did around Common Core. And so what I'll say about the Common Core from personal experience, I've seen it in action working in the schools that I've worked in and when I say that I saw third and fourth graders producing a quality of work that like blew my mind, right? But, and it was, it was absolutely amazing, right? But it came at a cost and it came at a cost of like, we're not really focusing on the arts and other things that are really important in the development of, of children, right? Like I think of, when I think about development of kids, I'm thinking about the whole child, but this policy specifically placed a heavy emphasis on reading and math to the point to where science and history are almost thrown, like are put to the wayside. They're not considered as important, right? And so, you know, to me, when I think about that, we're losing on a, on a generation of 
of scientists, right? We're losing out on a generation possibly of creative writers in the, in the, in the spirit of Toni Morrison and Maya Angelou, right? Or we're missing out on the next great um, the theater actor, you know, from our communities, right? And so those opportunities, the money from those programs are being taken and put in here because that's the best thinking from top down. Um, so I think that can be the danger of these things that are happening. So I, I, I'm with you 100% there. I'm going to play devil's advocate, right? So we talked about uh, almost a savior complex, right? And uh, especially of of uh, of white folks coming in with money, right? And, and dispersing it, however they might feel that they think would improve the community. But I could use an example uh, like LeBron James, who um, is becoming more philanthropic right now, right? He has a whole school, right? Dedicated to his his area in Ohio. But the, the teacher in me is like, LeBron, you play ball. Like, what do you know about the classroom, right? And everybody can see through social media that he's really involved with the campus and he'll come back and do different things. But the one thing that I would point out is that he's not developing the curriculum, right? He is letting experts do those things. And even, even now that he has money, right, his, 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 his mind frame has shifted. His perspective has shifted, right? Even though he has an experience growing up in the area, he doesn't, he's not there with, with, with students now, right? And so some of those dynamics even there have shifted, right? His own children aren't having the same experience that he did, which is always going to influence what he's what he's thinking about and what he's doing, right? Um, and so when he's thinking about, um, you know, uplifting this community, he, he, he has to always go back to who is there now, right? Because otherwise, it's no longer relevant, right? The, the reason that, that people are excited about it is because right now, in the ways that he's doing things and the way that he's supporting is relevant, right? Mm-hmm. It, you, can, you can see the, the final product in the way that students are excited about the school or how they're graduating or how the, the teachers are responding, are responding to the principal, right? You can see it in the culture that they build, which is something that you brought up as well. So I think that, you know, it goes into, you know, one of the final things that I thought about the article in terms of like always be guided by your key stake stakeholders, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and think about, um, you know, is the funding always related to, uh, those key, key stakeholder, um, thoughts, feelings, and expectations. Yeah. What, Dr. Theo, one thing I want to add there, it kind of goes back to my point of being hyper-local. Before LeBron James started the I-Promise School, he's been doing work in Akron for years, for like near for like 10, 15 years. And so he has a lot of context. He had a lot of relationships because he had been doing some work with the local public schools there before he even did that. So that's what I'm talking about, of being investing in the area and, and doing it over a long period of time. And to build on your point, he's listening to the experts. He's not influencing the poli- the education you know, policy in that building, right? Um, he's letting the experts decide the curriculum and things like that. Um, and he's he's providing the money and he's providing his his uh, his name his name image likeness and all that to benefit uh, for the students, right? And I think that's that's a great model for philanthropy. I think that um, you know you have to be really careful about 
it, it is colonial in a way when you're putting you're putting down this policy and you're not taking the stakeholders' views uh, and listening to their voices because sometimes you know sometimes people don't want don't even want the help, right? And and what do you do if you're in a community? The people they don't they don't really know you, they don't feel comfortable with your with what you're doing. And, you know, and they don't feel like it's benefiting you. And then that's that colonizer mindset where you're like, I know best. I know better than you do. Right. And that's not I don't think that's helpful. I actually think that it can be counterintuitive um, and actively, you know, damage communities in, in some ways. Do you think that there's a possibility that sometimes the philanthropist is actually the person coming into the situation with the right mindset, the right, you know, the right heart? And that they get someone at their site who has the colonizer agenda and that's their like their contact person. Right. Because mm-hmm. I think all the time, like I see in organizations that I've worked in or, um, you know, talk to my friends about because they tell me about their jobs. Right. Like I see organizations all the time where the person at the top of the, you know, the organization structure is actually cool. But the person that's advising them yeah. is the person that's causing all of the havoc. Yeah, I, Dr. Jackie, I think you raise a good point, because I think that, you know, when you're thinking about um, foundations, typically you have the family themselves and like the individuals who start the trust or the are uh, funded. And then you have the program officers and those are the people who are make, helping make decisions and who are to your point interacting most closely with those grantees. And so I do think that person has tremendous amount of influence, right? And I think that that um, they can have an outsized view on what's going on because some for some people, they like some program officers, they may be like, look, we're gonna donate the money, you're the experts, we're gonna get out of the way and let you do what you do and you report back to us. And they're sitting, but and um, but I still think that those program officers are really important to hold organizations that are giving money to accountable, right? Because at the end of the day, you don't want to just throw, like, I don't care what's happening. You don't want to throw money in something and nothing is actually happening, right? And so I think that person, that accountability level is really important there. But I've also seen and heard of situations where those program officers are having an outsized influence on a situation and on things that they're not necessarily an expert on, and they're pushing for results in a way that's not sustainable and and can be damaging long-term for the impact that they want to have. So I'm going to ask one more question just to wrap up the segment. Talk about the importance of how you've brought the key stakeholders into uh, board meeting rooms, right? How, how have you shared uh, perspectives of key stakeholders um, in a way that's been meaningful for, uh, for funders, for uh, philanthropists? Uh, tell us a little bit about that process. I think for me, it's storytelling. Um, we at we as human beings at our core can all relate to stories culturally i don't care what culture you come from at the at the earliest onset of it storytelling was key to passing on those tradition those traditions those beliefs values and all those things and so when you have a story and you tell it and you deeply believe in it um it makes all the difference like it's easy for me to go into a meeting and talk about my students, talk about my organization, because I'm so passionate about it, right? Because when I look at my, when I look out at my students, um, I see myself, right? And I can talk to about Genevieve, I can talk about Marvin, I can talk about uh, Miriam, I can talk about uh, all of them, because 
I, I, I see them and I talk to them, you know, I'm not the kind of like Theo, Dr. Theo, you mentioned earlier, I talk to my students. Like I, if like during this pandemic, I know I got a lot of their numbers in my phone. I'm texting them, seeing what's going on. How are they doing? I'm hitting them on Instagram. You know, I'm I, like, I am, I am, I am aware of who the participants of the students who, of who they are in my program. So it's not like I'm asking, I'm not emailing anybody out and um, to get a story so I can tell. No, these are stories that I've gotten directly from the students themselves based on them, you know, based on me meeting with them. I, I like, well, if a, if a student comes to me during a workshop and they say like, hey, Jerome, I'm struggling with an internship. I'm struggling with this decision. I'm like, yo, here's my accounting link. Let's schedule an hour. They're, I will sit in an hour uninterrupted with one of my students just to talk to them. Because at the end of the day, of course, my job as an executive director is really important to be do fundraising and overall strategy and other things like that for organization. But I think that I'll it'll be hypocritical of me to not make myself available at any point to my students because they are the reason why we're doing this work. And so who am I to say that my to be as self-important to say that my time is not as valuable um, for you don't have access to me. Right. And then also, I think it's really important. And this kind of gets into some leadership things. But I think it's really important as executive directors, as senior leaders in any organization to really understand what's going down on the ground level organization, because I think that I think both of you spoke a little bit about the perspectives as people get higher up. You know, I think as more and more layers come between you and what's happening on the ground level, it gets easier and easier to distance yourself from it and have like a kind of like a unrealistic view of what, how things work down there. Right. And so I like try to stay really close to what's happening on the ground level and be uh, as hands on as I can, as reasonable. But I think that's what makes me when I'm in the room talking about the program, talking about students, that, that's what makes it so effective because it's not a secondhand story that someone is telling me this is coming directly from students from my experience with them. So that was uh, that was just part one. going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hey, are you rolling your eyes right now because yet another talented student is questioning their abilities? We'll turn a negative into a positive, the no deficit model or no imposter syndrome tea. Check out all of our Black Social Capital swag and stay motivated by going to staymotivatedandrisetogether.com slash shop. All right, and we're back. So in our community capital segment, uh, this is a discussion of a professional's journey their best practices, lessons that they learned. Um, Jerome, you told us that one of the things that you focus on is the story, right? And so all this segment is doing is uh, allowing you to share your story. So we're going to start off with just your educational pathway. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us a little bit about your, yourself. Um, you know, we, we mentioned uh, the Mecca, Howard. Yes. But tell us tell us about your educational pathway um, and, and and how you ended up where you are now. Yeah. Um, so I, I was born and raised in Houston, Texas, and my grandmother raised me. Um, she did not go to school past the third grade. So education was really important to her. Education was really important to my mom. Uh, I grew up in a house with my mom, my brother, sister, my grandmother, my aunt and her three kids. So all of us is in this space together. And my older cousin, Crystal, was someone who I really looked up to. She like was a straight A student. And I'm like, man, I want to be like her. And from a young age, my mom really instilled in me 
that my mom was a teen mom too. So she really instilled in me the importance of education. And so I was really good at school and, you know, life was kind of turbulent at home at times. And so school was my escape and I was good at it. And I, I really focused and honed in on it. And I, I loved it. I loved learning. And, you know, from a very young age in kindergarten, I actually had a seizure and rode in an ambulance. And that was when I decided I was going to be a doctor. And that this, that me wanting to be a doctor actually is a thread that connects all the way through my educational journey, because that's what kind of like helped me be tunnel vision. Like, this is my goal. No matter what is going on around me, I'm going to focus on this thing. And that's what I, that's, that was a big contributing factor to what got me, helped me raise above my situation, raise above my situation, because I don't want to proliferate. Like, even though I'm from a low income community, I don't want to say, I don't want to use this language get out because I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about my community and deficit based mindset because, you know, there's nothing wrong with my community. It's just been uh, systemically this between systemic racism and oppression. There have been things that happen over a long period of time that cause the neighborhood to be what it is. Right. And so I view my role as to get educated and help dismantle those systems that, that cause those things to happen. So I got really good at school. I pushed all the way through um, high school and um, I, just like my big cousin, Crystal, I graduated valedictorian in high school. And so, I, like I said, I wanted to be like her. And I used to go visit her in Austin um, at University of Texas. I'm like, I'm going to UT. I'm going to UT. And then something happened. I went to Howard University the summer after my junior year. And honestly, I had never been around that many smart black people before in my life. You know, uh, and like I'm I was I'm raised in born and raised in Houston. I didn't leave the state of Texas until I was like 16 on a plane or leave the South. And so doing that, it really opened my eyes up to what was possible. And I saw that and I saw all that black intellectualism. And I was like that black excellence. I was like, man, I really want to be a part of this. It's something about the, the Mecca, the, the, the spirit, it just drew me there. And so that was um, after I had that experience that summer, I told everybody, look, I'm going to Howard. And the crazy thing about it is, is that people, my counsel, I'll never forget, my counselor in high school told me that I wouldn't make it. Like, this is a person, yeah, no, I'm legitimately, she told me that I wouldn't make it. I had, I remember when I went to Howard, I had a teacher who told my mom he's not going to make it. And, you know, and that's part of the reason why I am who I am as an educator, because I don't, everyone, I would never, I can't even fathom telling a student that you're not going to make it, right? And so that, though, like, moments like that actually are fuel to me to be the person, the educator I am and be the leader I am because that's just not how you treat people. Um, but I went to Howard and honestly, it was the best decision I could have ever made in my life because being from the South, I think that I was viewed as growing up because I was smart and black in a low-income community. I was held up on a pedestal in a, in a way that's very uncomfortable looking back on it now. And I needed to go and experience blackness in another way. Right. Because there's only, you know, in where I grew up, if you're smart and you're black, you're going to be a doctor or you're a lawyer. Right. And then going to Howard and being exposed to the black diaspora and its fullness, I didn't realize there were so many different ways to be black in America or to be just not in America, but just to be black in the world. And I think that was a really pivotal, pivotal experience for me because it opened my eyes up to what's what else is out there. Right. So I, I met folks who are from the from the uh, West Indies, from the Caribbean, from all countries around Africa, from all, all the United States, all over the United States. My roommate 
both his parents were doctors, right? That was like some Cosby show stuff to me. So it just showed me a different view. And it also, I think that if I'm being honest, I didn't really understand and respect my blackness. I was ashamed of where I came from. And I was, and I think it was part of that internalized racism that we have, that we were taught to be like the things about ourselves that we were taught, you know? Um, and I had to unlearn all of that. And, it, and, and I unlearned it at Howard and I came to be super proud of being black. I became super proud of attending the HBCU. Um, and I, I wanna say this here very unequivocally, HBCUs are important institutions of higher education um, and they will remain important institutions of higher education. And I think that if anything, if you look at what's been happening in the last few months here, it shows why HBCUs are still irrelevant and are still important bastions of black excellence and that we have to protect them and they must keep going. Um, because for some folks, though, like I have never felt that is the safest space I've ever been in my life. And it allowed to me to build the ultimate confidence. When I step into a room, I think I'm the best thing since sliced bread in that room. But part of that is because of the, the confidence that was instilled in me at Howard by my professors. Honestly, I had never had teachers. Like I had a few teachers that believed in me, but like I had never had so many adults believe in me so wildly in my life. And that that is freeing and it is so liberating. And it like that's why I don't put a I don't put a ceiling on what I can do because people didn't do that to me in college. So and I don't do that to my students, right? And so that is that's literally how we're gonna liberate each other. But like through by having mindsets like that, right? Um, but yeah, that's how that's my kind of my journey. I started out being a doctor, wanted to be a doctor. So I studied biology in undergrad. Um, but around my junior year, I actually started to volunteer. I worked at a, a, after a, a summer program for students. And I worked with students from third grade all the way to 12th grade. And I was like, man, I love teaching. And so that's how I decided to get into Teach for America. Um, I got cursed out when I told my family I was going to be a teacher. I think that that's the first lesson I wanted to say to the students out there is that, you know, when you are, when you're a first generation college student, I think there's a lot of pressure um, economically to support mm -hmm. the family and you're forced to make a decision and do some things that you're not always, that you don't necessarily want to do. And what I'll say is sometimes you got to stick to your guns and do what you think is best, even against what your family is saying. And that this goes to all my folks out there who are first generation college students, you're first generation American, you know, I, I know it's tough, but you have to do what you believe is best. And I'm going to tell you, like, even me starting out as a, fir a first year teacher, I made more money than my mom ever did. Right. And I was still able to help my family. And that was a springboard for me to get to the point that I am. Right. And I'm and I'm not hurting for money. Transparently, I do well. Right. But there's a pathway to it. But if you if you only go at it for money to me, that actually puts a ceiling on what you can accomplish. Right. When I do things, I have to. And I've learned my lesson that if I don't do things that based on the, what I value, it's not going to go right. When I when I make a decision, I go after something based on my values of family, of people, of community, then that's when things end up most effective. Right. And so I think that's how I ended up in edu in that in that education field. And I've stayed there since since um, I started my career. I, I appreciate that. I think um, I think building upon your, your values is, is super uh, important and it, it really shapes you know everything that we do moving forward. Right. Mm -hmm. I, that. You know, I've been uh, in and out of the classroom. I've been at mm -hmm. nonprofit. I've been in in K twelve. I've been in, in in higher ed. 
But the the through line is, you know, what are these values that are transferable from place to place? What are these mm-hmm. skills that are transferable from from organization to organization? And like that's why you can step into a boardroom, give them the business, <laughs> and, and, and then get back to work. Right. That's do that same business that you were just talking about. Right. So I think uh, that that's really important. Can you take a moment to, to really hone in on, on uh, what you do now, right? Cause your title is executive director, right. For a, a, a nonprofit organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, uh, did you ever see yourself in a, in a leadership title like that? Mm-hmm. And, and uh, tell us what you do on like a day to day in this role. Right, because there there's gonna be an executive director, hopeful and uh, out there, and we want to make sure that they have all the nuggets that they need. So, as the executive director of American EJU, we're a national nonprofit. We're in New York, New Jersey, LA, and Chicago, and I run our New York site, which is our largest site. And so we have we serve approximately 300 students every year, and each one of our students uh, work with a mentor that's a professional in the city. So we have around 600 participants in our program. Uh, budget is over a million dollars a year. So it's my job to fundraise 60% of the budget every year. And that's through uh, phila- through corporations, through um, family foundation, through foundations and other sources like that, create new partnerships with companies to support our students, um, to find pathways into careers that are, uh, that are emerging, such as the STEM and tech fields. Uh, also, I lead our program operations strategy around those things. And yeah, and so I'm, I have a hand in every in everything that's going on with the program. So when thinking about our fundraising, I'm intimately involved in that. I'm intimately involved in the program operations, and um, I, I facilitate on Saturdays with our workshops, and also thinking about opportunities to expand our program as well. And so, did I? The second part of that is, did I ever think that I would be an executive director? The I'm gonna say that. Yes and no, because I think that the first, I didn't know what an executive director was until I met my boss at Teach for America, New Jersey. Her name was Fatima Burnham Watkins, someone who I look up to immensely to this day. And she's one of the people, like, when I saw when I saw her, I'm like, yo, I want to be like her when I grew up. I want I want her job one day. And, you know, to her credit, I feel like she really invested in me. And keep in mind that, you know, at this point when I started there, I had been, you know, I was maybe three years out of school because I, I shifted from the classroom into TFA, um, working in the office there. And I felt like she really like invested in me a lot, you know, and spent a lot of time with me and gave me a lot of insights that she just didn't need to, you know. And I think that she saw something in me and she like encouraged me, you know. Um, and to this day, she's something that not just her. I think that she is who one of the people who I um, I try to be like as a leader because, you know, you want to funny. I worked there in two, for a year and a half from 2013 to 2014. I still keep in touch with that entire team. Like we have a group chat and like we, for like two months, everybody's all over the country. Like pe- we like found a day to meet up, like, so we can have a reunion, right? It, you don't, that's, it's something in the water like that. That's leadership. That's real leadership. Um, but yeah, so I think that it is something that I'm really, I love my job. I think it's great. I think that I want to see more um, black people serving as executive directors, particularly I want to see more black men serving as executive directors of not of a nonprofits. 
Um, I think the thing about it is, is that we need to diversify uh, in all layers. And I think that nonprofit executives themselves need to invest in the talent and in that, and like, and in that, and like in growing that talent, because I think that a lot of people leave the sector before they get to this point. Right. Um, and sometimes people leave and come back. Like I started at TFA and then, and like working, did, did a great job there, but then I went back into schools and then I came back as an executive director. But I think that the point is how do we keep the talent in the sector and nurture it as it goes up? So you told us what mm-hmm. you do. Your job is super uh-huh. important. You have a whole lot of responsibilities. Probably, mm-hmm. you know, you got staff, you got 600 participants. How are you, how are you, orga- I feel like this is like one of those job interview questions, right? How are you organizing yourself where you are able to spend time and talk to students, where you are able to check up on students, you know, text them and, you know, DM or, you know, speak with them on social media, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that honestly, Dr. Jackie, I'm going to be real with you. And this is for all the students out there. I am, organization is not one of my strong points. And I think it's really important to know what you're not good at. Because that um, part of it, when you're as a leader or just as a professional, when you're when you know what you're not good at, you can surround yourself with people who can help um, help you out with that, right? And I'm gonna be honest with you, I wouldn't be without my team. You know, <laughs> I'm gonna bleep that out. You know, because I have a really strong team that help me keeps keeps me on track, and I have people, I have a strong team who will set boundaries and say, Jerome, this is not what you need to be focused on right now. You need to be focused on this, right? So I think that's number one. Um, one thing that I do, uh, like to do, I'd like to, I have, a this, this planner that allows me to break out, break down my day, um, by time, by hour, because the thing about being an ED, I have a lot of meetings. Um, I, I manage, I have a team of, of eight people. And so I check in with, uh, any, I check in with all eight of them over the time. I have at least three check-ins with the people that I manage directly. I have biweekly check-ins with other people that I don't manage directly. I have to check in with my uh, the CEO of our organization weekly, and that's not to in, that's not including any meetings around um, fundraising events, any meetings with uh, potential donors, current donors, um, potential par- current partners, new partners. And so, uh, one thing that's been a lifesaver for me is Calendly. It's a software that allows you for folks to uh, find the time that works for them and schedule meetings on, on your calendar. I found myself spending a lot of time going back and forth by email, um, trying mm-hmm. to find a time that works instead. I can now I just say, Hey, here's my calendar link. Um, use it, schedule a time. And it's gotten, I've gotten really efficient with it. I downloaded the app on my phone. And so, um, now I can just like copy and paste the link there in emails when I'm on the move. Um, also I think that the other thing is here's what I'll say about, uh, people like, I'm going to say this people matter. And that's one of the the things that I, the way I lead, that's the way I live my life and just work as a team member, right? And so you show people how you value them how you by how you spend your time. Mm-hmm. And so I think that one thing that's really important to me as coming as an executive director, I feel like because of my educational background as a teacher, you know, programming is a strong point of mine, right? Um, I wasn't as strong on the philanthropy side, the development side. That's something that I've been steadily working to improve. And I want to shout out my our CEO, Mariana, and our chief external affairs officer, Emily, for working so diligently with me and being so patient with me on that uh, on that side. Um, but, you know, program students are something I value. And so I got to put my money where my mouth is with my time. And so to me, I think that I mean, I'm meeting I'm not meeting with like 15 students at an hour. Right. But 
who I, I feel like I would be hypocritical of me if I have a student who really wants my time and who says like, hey, Jerome, I really want to talk to you about this. And I can't give them an hour and all the hour, all the time I have. That's that's that that's not real to me. Right. And so if they if they can do it, I'm going to make time for them. Right. And then also, I think I'm like I'm also one that will actively seek out a student. Right. I let them like I give them my cell phone number. They have my email address. I, I don't restrict access to my to, to me. Right. And I think that a lot of leaders kind of put up layers between themselves and other people. That's just not who I am. Right. And there don't and there are some downsides to that. But I think that when you're trying to build a program, when you're trying to build anything, culture is important. And one thing I've learned about I learned from working in schools, culture permeates from the top down. And if you don't set culture, culture will set itself. And you have to be intentional about the, you, you know, when I think about culture, I know what I want to be, what I want it to be. I have a vision for it. But in or if I really, as a leader, if I want to see that culture permeate throughout the organization in the way that I want to do, I have to live what I what I and 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 live what I preach. I can't just say this is what we're about and I don't do it myself. I just feel like people are going to listen to this podcast and they are going to get so much from what you just said, right? Um, to mm-hmm. be an executive director. Uh, and to be able to, you know, give your students unrestricted access and actually like follow through, right? Because it's one thing to be like, yeah, here's my number. And then, but you don't have to respond, right? You can always say, oh, well, I have this thing with this donor. I don't have time to talk to you today. But you're not doing that. You're making time. And, and you know what? The, on, the other thing, Dr. Jackie, I'll say is that honestly, as much access as I give students to me, I may have like, I can, there have been, there are what, at any given time, around 300 students in the program, there have been maybe 15 who've taken advantage of it, right? So honestly, mm-hmm. I think it's more important to be open because not everybody's going to use that time, right? But it's much more important to make yourself available because if you and, and then follow through to your point, because if I say it and I don't do it, then people are going to start talking like, "Well, Jerome ain't actually ain't doing what he says he's going to do." But mm-hmm. when people see me doing that. Like my then volunteers are more willing to give their time and all like it, it's a trickle down effect that I think is really important. And as it's something that's really important as leaders to think about, because that's one thing I learned about teach, like being in the school and working with students, like the way you lead their classroom, it goes like like students. If you don't do what you say you're going to do, they're not going to believe you. They're not going to trust mm-hmm. you Right at the core of every single relationship. When you're in relationship with people at the core of it is trust. And if you don't have trust, you don't have anything because, you know, if people trust you, they'll run through a wall for you. Right. And that's how you make and that's how transformational change happens. Right. And then you, you're when you're in relationship with one another and you show people it's not about telling people. Right. Words are empty, but it's about having putting the action behind the words and showing them I'm going to show up here. I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do. Right. And I learned that by cutting my teeth. Looking at my thinking about the students I worked with in Brownsville, I told my students, hey, I'm going to come pick you up on a weekend. We're going to go hang out so I can get to know you better. And they thought I was BSing them. I Mm -hmm. I showed up in the projects, knocked on their door like, what's up? Let's roll out. What what are we doing? We're going to Chuck E. Cheese bet. Let's go. Chuck E. Cheese. What's up? We're going to Applebee's after? All right, bet. We're going to Applebee's. You get get two things. That's it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Bring your school appetite. Bring your school appetite. That's all good. That's all good. Can I say one more thing, Dr. Go ahead. Go ahead. And 
the world has been crazy the last for just 2020 has been crazy period but for all the students that are out there i just want you all to know that this is your time right the world is not going to change if we don't apply pressure to it and the no the way that we were traditionally taught years and years ago to just put just to assimilate go into spaces and and just work till you die that's not what that's what not what's going to bring change about right and so students when you walk into spaces no one gave you that opportunity you earned the right to be there now when you walk in there um i want you to show with excellence and then i want you to work your way up and then i want you to work to actively dismantle the systems that are in place um and help improve the situation and improve it for the next people who come back behind you reach back to those people who are at your colleges who you know who were, when you were a peer mentor you know those younger people giving advice on how to tackle these things um because that's the only way these systems are going to change that's the only way things are going to get better if we uh if we work in commun in community with one another um and so i just want y'all to know i i don't know who needs to hear this but i deeply believe in you um there is no ceiling in what you can what you can imagine what is possible just go out there and do it you're going to fall on your face that's fine get back up and do it again um and please 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 don't try and do it on your own there are always people out there who can support you find mentors um i wouldn't be where i am without mentors there's a black man named paulie rodney he's the reason why i'm the executive director today if he didn't tell me he helped me believe that i can do this right and so it is my it is I, now i view it as my responsibility for the next young black man who wants to be executive director for me to instill that same belief in him and that is how um that's how the world is going to change that's how it's going to get better if we all just care a little bit enough about everybody our own success is really important but our own success doesn't mean anything if our uh, if others aren't successful um and i'll leave you with a personal mantra of mine ubuntu i am who i am because we all are if my brother or my sister isn't doing well then i'm doing well and if we all keep uh work to have that mindset then the world will be a much better place look if uh if you didn't get out your your pen and paper right uh, your, your tablet your phone uh, i don't know what she was doing mm-hmm. uh, but you're gonna have to go ahead and, and replay this this episode and go ahead and take those notes with that it's a wrap we'll see you all on the next pod and uh we out bye thanks everybody we hope you enjoyed today's show remember the way we build social capital is to build self and build others you're sure you got some notes on your tablet computer or even using a pen and paper Leave us a review, continue the conversation on social media at Black Social Cap, and share the show with someone you know. Until the next episode, stay motivated and rise together. We love supporting other small businesses. If you'd like to be a sponsor on the Black Social Capital podcast, it's as easy as visiting blacksocialcapital.com and clicking on Sponsor the Show. This is Black Social Capital.